Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 314, 10 Fundamental Questions About the Trinity. Suppose that someone suggests to you that you need a major surgery. Any surgery, you should know, especially a major one, is going to involve a lot of costs and a lot of risks in addition to some hoped-for payoff. To determine whether or not you should actually go through with it, you need to know what questions to ask of the surgeon who would potentially carve you up in this way. You should ask, what are the risks? What complications could there be? What's the expected recovery time? What are the unknowns about this procedure? How much is it going to cost? What's the chance that this problem we're fixing will just reoccur in a year? Is there an alternative surgical treatment? Is there an alternative non-surgical treatment? Is it better, all things considered, just to wait and see what happens? And so on. You need experts, yes, but you need to question your experts. In fact, for some surgeries, you'll find that experts disagree. And that makes it extra difficult for someone like you and me. Or suppose that you're thinking about making a major purchase, like buying a new car. Again, you need to know the right questions to ask. Is this car reliable? What are the regular maintenance costs? How many miles does it get per gallon? How many people can it safely transport at once? How hard is it to drive? How likely is it to be stolen? How much does it cost to repair? How many miles can I reasonably expect this car to last for? It's not smart to buy a new car just because you like the color or because your friend has one. You need to know the right questions to ask. That's the only way you'll know if this is a wise purchase or a foolish one. Now, suppose that you're thinking about making a major doctrinal purchase, so to speak. Perhaps you heard episode 302 of this podcast called The Stages of Trinitarian Commitment And you realize that you've just been stuck at stage one, that you've heretofore just sailed along in churches where some doctrine of the Trinity was on the books, like in the official statement of faith, but you never really looked into it, were never quite sure what that doctrine is or why a Christian should believe it. Perhaps your pastor never preaches on the Trinity, or maybe the few times he did, you went away at least as confused as you were before. But now you've decided to look into the matter and hopefully make the doctrine of the Trinity your own. An informed and responsible Christian ought to know what he or she believes and why, right? After all, 2 Timothy 2 says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Surely this admonition applies not only to pastors, but also to Sunday school teachers, parents, or just educated Christians generally. And you've long known that there are some dastardly cultists who deny the Trinity, which is a very great error indeed, so you've heard. So it's important to settle one's mind about this difficult topic. And so reasonably, you go looking for an expert who can tutor you on this topic. But... You should not trust every surgeon, nor should you trust just any car salesman. Just so, you should not trust any old theologian. As with any highly specialized field where there are great things at stake, 
There are frauds, incompetence, and kooks. You need to go in armed with some basic pressing questions about the doctrine of the Trinity and see if this expert can give you solid, supportable answers to them. If you get online and start looking, you'll find that there are a plethora of would-be experts on the doctrine of the Trinity which offer to tell you the basics of what you need to know about the subject in a short paperback book or in a lecture or three. In this podcast, I'm going to equip you with 10 questions which any actual expert should have ready and supportable answers to. For many reasons, which I won't go into in this episode, many self-proclaimed experts on the Trinity seem unable to clearly answer many of these basic and pressing questions. At the end of this episode, I'll briefly tell you my answers. I've been researching this for more than two decades. But you can skip that ending part if you want, because my main point here is just to arm you with important questions as you start to find your way around this topic. Towards the end, I'll also give you 10 more advanced questions. If a source can give convincing answers to any of these harder questions, then it should get some bonus points, especially if it can answer the 10 more basic ones. The first question is the most fundamental. It is, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? And it's not enough to answer this question just to repeat the standard language. We've all read the creedal statements that the one God eternally exists in three persons, and we know that there are supposed to be three, quote, persons on this doctrine, each of which are fully divine or which have the divine essence or substance. Sometimes they say God is one what but three who's. Okay, so you've got somewhat standard language and then somewhat less standard language, less traditional language. But the question is, what does it mean? Suppose some politician says, vote for me because I believe in freedom. You should immediately ask that politician, freedom, what do you mean by freedom? That's just an abstract noun. There could be 75 different things that you meant by that. Maybe some of those things I'm for and some of them I'm against. So please explain, sir, what you mean when you say you're in favor of freedom. Okay, Mr. Theologian, please explain what you mean by saying that there are three divine persons, or three persons which eternally share the divine essence, or three persons in one divine being. It's not enough to gas about, quote, the grammar of the Trinity. Someone who wants to tell you about that is telling you what to say and what not to say. But why should you go along with this so-called grammar? To just go say this and don't say that doesn't expound on the meaning of the traditional Trinitarian language. Until we know the meaning of that language, until we know what this prestigious and profound doctrine of the Trinity really is, then we can't even find evidence or arguments for or against it. What is it? nor can we confidently draw theological inferences from it or practical implications from it. But we have to be able to, according to Trinitarian theologians. They confidently tell us that the Trinity is a sort of cornerstone or maybe even a foundation for Christian theology. Okay, well then, if that's so, we have to know what it is so that we can found other beliefs on the basis of it or at least make sure other teachings are consistent with it. It can't just be a black box where you don't know what's inside. Many theologians also strongly assert nowadays that the Trinity is the most practical of doctrines. 
that it has many important implications for our lives. Okay, great, but to be able to draw out those implications, we're going to have to know what it is. And if somebody just repeats traditional language for us, we don't yet know what it is. And so how can we know that it's fundamental? How can we make it the center of our thinking? How can we derive these wonderful practical implications out of it if we don't know what it is? Okay, so to answer this question, we're going to have to say a little bit about what these, quote, persons are. And what does it mean to say that each one of these three persons shares the divine essence or substance? Finally, in what sense do these three somehow add up to one God? If you can answer these basic terminological questions, you can go beyond formulaic parroting of traditional language to an actual understandable doctrine, a doctrine that you might be able to support and defend, a doctrine which you might be able to make foundational to your theology or derive important practical implications from. Question number two. Why is this doctrine not, as some allege, tritheism? In other words, why doesn't it imply belief in three gods? Now, who are these people who allege that the Trinity amounts to tritheism? Well, there are Muslims. They have always objected in this way. They say, we are the true monotheists and you guys aren't. You're actually tritheists despite yourselves. Then there are Unitarian Christians, Christians who don't believe that one God is three persons. They think the one God is the Father alone. And some of them will say, hey, sorry guys, I believe in one God. I'm a one God Christian. You guys look like you have three gods here. But it goes beyond that. It's not just non-Trinitarian people who claim that some views of the Trinity are tritheistic. Some Trinitarians actually object in this way against other Trinitarians. For instance, the well-known Christian analytic theologian Richard Swinburne, a good number of philosophers, including myself, have looked at his explication of the Trinity and said, sorry, my brother, but that looks like tritheism to me. So there's a lazy answer here that you should not settle for. The lazy answer is to say, oh, it's just these dumb outsiders. They don't really understand what the Trinity is. Only an uninformed person would ask why this isn't tritheism. Come on, we say there's one God and three persons. It's by definition monotheistic. Well, that's right. By intention, a doctrine of the Trinity is monotheistic and not tritheistic. It's supposed to be a theology about the unique God, such that this God is in some sense tripersonal. Okay, but it's not enough to point out this intention, because good intentions are no comfort if your theology also implies that there are three gods, that is to say, tritheism. Again, you can't just say there's one God and three persons and tritheism is false. We need to be able, when we look at your doctrine of one God and three persons, to see that there is no such implication. Good intentions, here monotheistic intentions, are not enough. The logical implications of your claims are not one bit affected by your intentions. They just are what they are, whether you acknowledge them or intend them or not. The claims that you have either do or don't imply multiple gods. 
Now, why would anybody think that three divine persons amounted to three gods? Well, you might ask, what is a god if a god is not a divine person? If that's what a god is, and you've got three divine persons, then for that very reason, you will have three gods. If each divine person is a god, then there can't be fewer gods than there are divine persons, right? Now, is that a mistake? Is it false to say that a god is a divine person? If so, what is the relevant concept of a god? If divine persons are supposed to be three parts of God, what is that whole thing then? What sort of thing are we talking about? If we can't say that the one God is a divine person, then what can we say about it? Is this thing a group? From a different angle, it's part of traditional Trinity language to say that each of the three persons has the divine essence. And the divine essence is supposed to, by definition, be that in virtue of which the owner of the essence is a god. Okay, but we've got three things here, and each one of them has the divine essence, so then each one of them has all that it takes to be a god. So then, why is that not three gods? There should be an answer here. And again, we can't just assert that the Trinity isn't tritheism. We need to lay it out in a way so that people can see that it doesn't imply tritheism. Question 3. Why is this doctrine not, as some allege, incoherent? Apologists, whether Catholic or Protestant, who defend, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, they generally seem to assume that people reject it because they think it's self-contradictory, that is to say, incoherent. In other words, it contains claims all of which can't be true. It involves some contradiction of the form P and not P. To put it differently, if you accept all these claims, you will be asserting and denying the same thing, perhaps multiple times over. Now there's a standard opening move here, which is a very shallow and surface answer. This is something apologists coach one another to say. It goes like this. If we said that God is three beings and one being, that would be incoherent. If we said that God is three persons and one person, that would be incoherent. But what we're saying is that God is three persons but one being. And where's the contradiction in that? Well, isn't a person a being? Like a person is an intelligent, conscious, acting being? So then, if there are three persons, there would be three beings? How would we reply to that? So I don't think that standard opening move really goes very far in answering the question. It's also not enough to say, oh, there you go again, you dingling outsiders, you Muslim apologists. You just don't know what you're talking about. Of course it's not incoherent. That's only something a dumb, uninformed outsider would say. Well, I hate to tell you, but that's not true, because there are some friends of the Trinity who think that the claims that constitute this doctrine are actually incoherent. There are some theologians who think that the Trinity implies at least one contradiction, and yet it's true. So it's not just a hostile outsider's misunderstanding. It's a really obvious question that looks like it needs to be answered. I assume, like most people do, that any contradiction is going to be false. 
And so a doctrine that implies a contradiction will have one or more false claims inside that doctrine, and so it can't be completely true. So we don't want incoherence in our theology because we want it to contain only true claims. And be clear, it's not enough to say, here's my theology of the Trinity, and by the way, it's all coherent. It's no good to just say that. You need to be able to show that there doesn't seem to be any implication of contradiction. Just the intention that your theology should be coherent doesn't make it coherent. Just one more angle on this, and if you want to explore it further, especially if you've had a little bit of training in contemporary logic, you can look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on the Trinity, section 1.4, to go into this a little bit further in more detail. But here's a more basic angle about why you would think there may be an inconsistency here. So it's part of any Trinity theory to say that there are three persons, and so no one person is going to be identical to the other. They're not supposed to be three words that refer to the same one, like me, myself, and I, or Dale, Dr. Tuggy, Mr. Tuggy. The Father, Son, and Spirit are really supposed to be three. Now, if you understand the claim that each one is divine as saying that each one just is the one God, then you've got the Father just is the one God, and the Son just is the one God. But it's self-evident that things that are numerically identical to the same thing are identical to one another. So if the Father just is God and the Son just is God, it follows that the Father just is the Son. But wait a second, we just said the Father was not the Son, because the persons truly are three, not one. So to have a doctrine of the Trinity that's not incoherent, that does seem to be coherent, it should show you a way around what I just said. It shouldn't accept that the Father just is the one God, the Son just is the one God, and yet the Father is different than the Son, because those three things couldn't all be true. Because again, if each of the Father and the Son just is God, then they also have to be each other. When the Trinity's podcast returns, three more foundational questions to ask about the Trinity. fourth question is this, is this doctrine consistent with the common conception of God as a mighty, unique, and completely perfect self? Sometimes in philosophy and in Eastern religions, people will use the word God for whatever the ultimate reality is, even if they hold that it is an inconceivable something, such as being itself, or an impersonal principle like Nirguna Brahman, Nirvana, the Buddha nature, or the Tao. Note that such a thing is not correctly thought of as a god, that is to say, a unique deity. 
For more on this, see podcast 164 called On Counting Gods, or my published paper, which is available free online by that same name. But in an apologetics or world religions context, we contrast the Christian view of God with these impersonal things that sometimes are referred to as, quote, God. The Christian God is personal. He, note the personal pronoun, he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can pray to him and he will hear and answer. He's offended by our sin, but he stands ready to forgive the one who repents. Common Christian practices and preaching clearly presuppose that God is a perfect self. And it's not just at the popular level. At the elite level, for Christians trained in historical theology and in philosophy, there's a tradition called perfect being theology. The idea here is that a core concept that applies to God is being absolutely perfect, and so you should be able to figure out which features God does and does not have based on that conception. So in these kinds of traditions, people commonly say that God is by definition omnipotent, that is all-powerful, omniscient, that is to say all-knowing, and omnibenevolent, which is to say perfectly good. And note that each one of these entails being a someone, that is to say, a self. An apple, a stone, a planet can't be omniscient. They don't have any knowledge at all. A tree, a badger, a flea, they're not omnibenevolent. They're not morally good at all. And omnipotence has to do not just with any kind of power, but with intentional power, power that's purposefully, deliberately, consciously exercised. An all-powerful being will be able to make a world so as to support happy, thriving creatures. But notice that tasks like that require intelligence. They require that the actor or the cause is a self. Okay, So the Trinity, whatever that amounts to, if it does fit with this idea of God as a perfect self, then show how this is so. And if the Trinity does not fit with this idea of God as a perfect self, then you need to explain why we should choose the Trinity as you understand it, even at the cost of denying that God is a perfect self. On the face of it, it looks like a pretty big cost. Question 5. When, if ever, did God reveal the doctrine of the Trinity? Some say Old Testament, some say New Testament, some say in between the writing of those two testaments, and some would say a good while after the last New Testament book was written. So which is it? This tends to press the issue of post-biblical revelation, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians believe that God has set up the true church to be ruled by a hierarchy of bishops and other leaders, and they believe that God's Spirit will lead these into all truth. And so, if a doctrine isn't in the Bible, well, so long as it's taught by this God-guided official institution, they think that's good enough. And by the way, the question here is not about hints and indications. It's not about teases, but rather about revelation. Revelation is by definition a successful communication. If the Almighty God actually reveals something, this logically implies that people get it. He's not a clumsy, ineffective revealer. 
So whenever the Trinity is revealed, at that very time, we should see people in history talking and acting like Trinitarians. So please supply us with a rough date. Or, if your view is that God has not revealed the Trinity, explain why, nonetheless, all Christians should believe in the Trinity. Question 6. If this doctrine is in the Bible, how can one see this? Now, as far as I can tell, there are really four types of answers people will give here. One is just, hey, it's not in the Bible. And Catholics and Orthodox Christians may be happy with that answer for the reason which I just very briefly said a minute ago. But what if it is in the Bible? What does that mean to say it's in the Bible? Well, we could mean that it's explicit, but it's not going to be explicit, right? The term Trinity isn't in the Bible, and It looks like some of the required statements, for instance, that God is three persons which share one usia or essence or being, those claims are not explicit in the Bible, so it looks like we should give up on that one. If it's in the Bible, the most we can say is that it's implicit. In other words, it's implied by what's there in some sense. And I would draw a distinction between that the authors assume it, but they don't bother to assert it, versus the authors do assert it, but just implicitly. Again, it's not enough to say that it's implicit in the Bible. We need to be shown how the doctrine of the Trinity is implied by what's there. And that's actually a good bit harder than many suppose, because the Trinity is not going to amount to be just three or four claims, but rather something like seven, eight, nine, or ten claims. For more on this, check out Trinity's podcast 260 called How to Argue that the Bible is Trinitarian. How on earth would you get ten component claims out of the Trinity? You might just think it was three claims or four claims like people sometimes say. Okay, well, take the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646, a central confession in Reformed traditions. Let me just read this Westminster Confession of Faith about the Trinity, and then I'll go through it again and show you why there are at least ten claims there. It says, In the unity of the Godhead, right, the divine nature, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So this is how you get at least ten claims. One claim is, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons. Okay. Second, these three persons are of one substance. Third, these three persons are of one power. Fourth, these three persons are of one eternity. They are five, God the Father, six, God the Son, seven, God the Holy Ghost. Claim number eight, the Father is of none. He's neither begotten nor does he proceed. Nine, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And ten, the Holy Ghost is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. When you get deep into this topic, you'll see that it's actually very difficult to get all of those claims. Just to pick one out of the ten, eternity. Where does the New or Old Testament actually say that the Son of God is eternal? People think it's presupposed in passages like John 1, but it doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning was the Word. If you think the Word is the pre-human Jesus, that tells you that Jesus existed at the following time, in the beginning. 
which presumably is the time of the Genesis creation. Well, you might exist at that time and not be eternal, right? Not exist at all times. Uh, Seventh claim, that one of the three divine persons is God the Holy Ghost. Really? A lot of the language about God's Spirit makes it sound like it's an impersonal something, although admittedly there are a few passages that talk about it in personal terms. Okay, so that actually turns out to be kind of hard to argue. Okay, so there's only two ways forward here. Either you show how the doctrine of the Trinity, as you understand it to be, is either implicitly asserted or assumed in the Bible, or you say, okay, actually it's not, and then you move on to the next question. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my final four basic questions that should be asked about the doctrine of the Trinity. Question number seven, if this doctrine is not in the Bible, why should Bible-oriented Protestants accept it? If it really is in the Bible, you can skip this one. But if you say, well, actually it's not quite in there, then this becomes a pressing question. And what some scholars will say, like my friend Bill Hasker, the analytic theologian, is that basically the Trinity is the best explanation of what is and isn't in the Bible. So it's not part of the contents taught in the Bible, but it's something necessary to understanding the contents of the Bible. This question in the preceding one really raises the issue of sola scriptura. It's part of Protestant ideology that a theological doctrine is obligatory for all Christians only if it's in the Bible. This and the preceding question can be explored by considering an inconsistent triad of claims. So these are three claims such that logically only two of them can be true. If you accept any two of them, then the third one has to be false. And it's a way of showing a choice that has to be made here. Okay, so one of the claims is all Christians must believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. A popular assumption, to be sure. The second claim is, the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. This is something held by many biblical scholars, although conservative systematic theologians tend to deny it. And then third, a theological doctrine is obligatory for all Christians only if it is in the Bible. Right, so let's just run through the options. If it's true that all Christians must believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible, then it's false that the theological doctrine is obligatory for all Christians only if it's in the Bible. That's the answer of a lot of Catholic scholars, and interestingly, some Protestant scholars. But let's go through the other combinations. If the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible, and a theological doctrine is obligatory for all Christians only if it is in the Bible, then it's false that all Christians must believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a Unitarian Christian stance about all of this. Stick to your Protestant guns and say, if it's really obligatory, it would be in the Bible, but it's not, and so it's not obligatory. 
There's one more option. If it's true that all Christians must believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's true that a theological doctrine is obligatory for all Christians only if it's in the Bible, then it must be false that the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. It must be that the doctrine is in the Bible, because all Christians must believe it, and that requires that it's in the Bible. That's the option that's chosen by many Trinitarian Protestants. But if our answer to question six was, actually, it's not in the Bible, so I'm not going to tell you how it's in the Bible, then you can't deny the second claim here. You can't deny that the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. So either you go the Unitarian way of denying that this is an obligatory doctrine for Christians, or you go the Catholic way of denying that a theological doctrine being obligatory requires that it's in the Bible. This is the way chosen by some sophisticated Protestant scholars nowadays. They're rather more Catholic on this question than a lot of lay people would assume. To put it differently, they're happy to give some serious weight to post-biblical Christian theological traditions. Speaking of those, question 8. How does this doctrine relate to the so-called ecumenical councils? So if you take all of the Roman Catholic councils, and then you include the ones that also had the Eastern Orthodox as part of it, you come up with the first seven from that Catholic list, and those seven are accepted both by Roman Catholics and by the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, what do Protestants think about those? It's a very ticklish question. In practice, A lot of Protestant theologians treat the first four councils as just inviolable rules. Why? That's an interesting question. What about five, six, and seven? What's so special about the first four? It's also a little strange because a lot of Protestants don't have authoritative bishops. A lot of Protestants belong to churches that are not ruled by bishops. If a bunch of bishops today got together and voted on some doctrine, a lot of Protestants would just blow it off completely. Why then is this relevant what these meetings of bishops did in the year 381 or 451 or 325? Okay, how does the Trinity relate to the so-called ecumenical councils? We'd want to know where it is, which council is it that tells us that God is three persons in one essence? And also we want to know, are those meetings of bishops our authorities for this teaching? In other words, do we believe the Trinity because it's expressed by at least one statement made by an ecumenical council? Or do we only believe it because it's in the Bible and these councils just happen to get this right? And we can only trust councils when it so happens that they're actually successfully summarizing what's implicit in the Bible. Popular lore is that the Trinity is first expressed in the Nicene Creed of 325. Is that correct or not? For now, I'll leave you with the question. Question number nine. Why have some Christians opposed any Trinity doctrine? Because this did happen in the 4th century, and then it started happening again at the time of the Reformation, and it continues till this day, admittedly among a small minority of Christians. Now, what's most popular for present-day authorities on the Trinity is just to ignore this inconvenient fact. They just would rather give the false impression that all Christians have always believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. But that's just not so. Just knowing some basics about Reformation history is enough to tell you this. 
Just as reformers rejected the papacy, clerical celibacy, the practice of monks and nuns, reliance on ecumenical councils, some of them also said, hey guys, we went back to the sources, the books of the Old and New Testaments, and we didn't find any trinity here. Okay, so why is there this minority report? There are various diagnoses. Maybe these people just don't believe the Bible. Maybe they're just confused because they're so individualistic. They just go, it's a Bible and me, and they ignore all of church history. Maybe they're rationalists who don't believe things they can't fully explain. Maybe they're members of cults. Maybe they've been corrupted somehow by philosophy. Okay, there's various diagnoses here, but look carefully. In answering this question, does your authority just dismiss these Christian dissenters with broad accusations? Or do they actually quote these dissenters at some length and give you a good sense of what they think in their own words? It's all too easy to straw man here, to just set up a a silly scarecrow that uh, slightly resembles a person's position and then punch it out, knock it down. To answer this why question, you need to go beyond just simplistic, casually lobbed accusations like rationalism and see what those people actually said. Maybe they're terribly, horribly mistaken. But if so, it would seem important to know what their mistake is. Hence this question. Question number 10. Is this doctrine, as the Athanasian Creed asserts, something which one must believe in order to be saved? The portion of the Athanasian Creed that deals with the Trinity ends by saying this, Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. And then after going through his second half about incarnation, it says, This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. On the face of it, it seems that this creed is saying that either you believe in the Trinity or you're going to hell. Is that true? That is the question. It seems like a rather pressing, practical question. Now, honesty requires noting that really most Christians don't think this nowadays, despite this famous creed's threats. On this, you can see Trinity's podcast number 286 called Is the Trinity Essential? Three Views. In brief, at least for Protestant Christians, when they counsel someone on what they must believe in order to be born again and be baptized, they don't talk about the Trinity, especially in enough detail as to give seven or eight or nine, ten claims. There's a standard sort of gospel presentation which just sidesteps all of these issues. If you don't have a clear answer to this, you're not dealing with somebody who has fully developed views on the topic. And it's not enough to change the subject and pound the table that it's essential, that it's important, that it's really exciting, and so on. All that may be so, but those claims don't answer this very pressing practical question. When the Trinity's podcast returns... 10 more advanced questions about the doctrine of the Trinity.
this segment, I'm just going to more or less give 10 further questions with not too much explication. I think these are harder questions. I think you might write an introductory book about the Trinity and answer the 10 questions I just gave and wouldn't necessarily answer all of these questions. They still seem like important questions, but maybe they're not as basic and fundamental as the ones I just gave. So bonus points if your expert, if your book, if your lectures answers some of these questions in a plausible way. Advanced question number one. Hypothetically, what would be required to show that the doctrine of the Trinity is false? Answering this could help us to get a lot clearer on just what, quote, the Trinity is. Second advanced question. Does the Trinity either require or exclude a traditional doctrine of divine processions? So divine processions is the doctrine that eternally the Father generates the Son, and also eternally the Father, or maybe the Father and the Son together, spirate the Spirit, or the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father or from the Father and the Son. Call those claims a doctrine of divine processions. Some explications of the Trinity that are out there today require those things to be false. On the other hand, some versions of the Trinity require those claims to be true. Advanced question three. Is this doctrine a mystery? And if so, what does that mean? Is it just that it can't be fully explained? Is it that it involves a contradiction? Is it that it involves a merely apparent contradiction? Or is calling it a mystery just to say it's a high and wonderful revealed doctrine? Advanced question four, is the doctrine of the Trinity consistent with divine simplicity? Divine simplicity is that God exists without any internal distinctions, so that whatever property he has, he is. So you can't distinguish between God and his wisdom. He just is his wisdom. You can't distinguish between his wisdom and his goodness. His wisdom just is his goodness, and each one just is him. God's sort of like a fundamental particle on a doctrine of divine simplicity. In not having distinct components or parts, it's not just the point that you couldn't divide the persons of the Trinity. It's that there aren't any objective differences within God. That's to put divine simplicity very roughly. You'll have to look it up in the Stanford Encyclopedia if you want to see uh, kind of more detail about that. Not every theologian believes in divine simplicity, but it seems like it would be good to know if you could have both simplicity and trinity. And you might think not, because what are the three persons of the trinity, if not three eternal distinctions or differences within the one God? Advanced question five. What, if any, are the Jewish and or Christian precursors to this doctrine of the trinity? That is to say, what are the stages by which this line of thinking about God developed? Advanced question six. What are the various competing ways of understanding the traditional Trinity language? That is to say, what are the various Trinity theories? Question seven. How can we rule out competing Trinity theories? If we've already said what the correct understanding of the Trinity is, well, it remains a fact that other alleged theological experts give expositions of the Trinity language which are incompatible with what you just said. So how do you show that these other explications are mistaken? 
Advanced Question 8. Why isn't the prevalence of such disagreement among people who have a Trinity theory evidence that no such theory has been revealed by God? In general, a multiplicity of theories is worrisome and is not a reassuring sign. So, some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but back when AIDS was first discovered by Western medicine, back around 1981, when it was first reported on, it actually wasn't called AIDS back then. They just observed all these sick people. They had this phenomenon that they had put their finger on, but they really did not know what the cause of that phenomenon was. About a year later, they settle on the title of Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, but there are still theories about what the cause of this is. Eventually, they figured out that it's caused by this HIV virus, but that was a hard-won piece of knowledge. And when they found that out, the other theories were left to one side and are now forgotten. So in general, a crowd of living theories tells us either that we have no true explanation of the phenomenon, or if there is an explanation, it's not widely known. Because if it was, there wouldn't be a crowd of theories. Now on this topic, there's this strange tradition of spinning competing theories as if they were just sort of differences in emphasis or something like this. And so what on the face of it looks like an embarrassment is now understood to just be an embarrassment of riches. I mean, this guy says A, B, C, and this guy says D, E, F, but uh, maybe we can just have it all. Say A, B, C, D, E, F, right? What's the problem, really? This guy gives us one aspect of the reality. This guy gives us another aspect. I mean, it's all wonderful. It's good, isn't it, right? Well, not if A implies not F, then you can't have A, B, and C, and also D, E, and F. And the thing about these competing trinity theories is that generally speaking, if you pick any two of them, if one of them is true, then the other one would be false. So they're not just different in emphasis or different in starting points or something. There really are different claims, and there are clashes within those claims. So again, should this make us doubt that the trinity has actually been revealed or not? If not, why not? Advanced question 9. If the Trinity is a salvation-required doctrine, then why is it not clearly spelled out in any biblical passage? In advanced question 10. In what sense, if any, is the Trinity an essential doctrine? Essential to what exactly? In other words, we can't truly have fill-in-the-blank until we have a doctrine of the Trinity. It needn't be salvation, maybe just fully traditional teaching, or teaching which is fully adequate to the Bible, or something like that. There's a lot of loose talk about the Trinity being essential, but we need to say what it is supposedly essential to, and then that actually needs to be true. It's not enough just to say it. It has to be that you really can't have that wonderful thing without having this doctrine of the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll briefly give you my answers to the 10 basic questions.
In this last segment, I'll briefly give you my own answers to the 10 basic or fundamental questions about the Trinity, and I'll even very quickly give answers to the advanced questions. I can't here take the time to give you my evidence or reasoning behind most of these answers. I have a large body of published work on these topics now, especially if you include podcasts, so I'll refer you to some of these. You can find most of my publications at my academia.edu page. But I would say that you should stop the podcast right here if you want to first go and get answers from your preferred expert. Go grab that book. Go listen to those lectures with those first 10 basic or fundamental questions in front of you and see what their answers are. Do they give answers to those questions that are clear? Are those answers true? Can you support those answers? Can you find evidence for those answers? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think about this. You shouldn't take my word for it. The purpose of this podcast is not to give you easy answers. It's to equip you with the questions that you need to really get to the bottom of this doctrine of the Trinity business. So if you're just launching your own investigation, by all means, stop now and go pursue answers to those 10 questions. The podcast will still be here if you come back in three months or a year or three years and you want to finish it and hear what my answers are. Okay, so just very quickly, if you're still listening, you just want me to put my cards on the table, I'll do that. With little explanation, I'm going to give you my answers to the 10 basic questions. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? What is the proper way to understand the traditional language? Guys, I've looked into this hard. There isn't one doctrine. There is a vague idea common to all the Trinity theories, and that is that there is a tripersonal God that the one God is the three persons together. If you want to see my discussions of different ways of understanding the key terms persons and then being or essence, check out a couple of chapters in my short book called What is the Trinity? Two, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, tritheism? Well, as you might have guessed from my mentioning Richard Swinburne before, I think some Trinity theories do amount to tritheism, but I think other ones do not. So it really just depends on how you explicate that traditional language. If you look at my Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the Trinity, I don't think that what I call oneself theories there are tritheistic. So even though I'm a Unitarian Christian, I've never argued that any Trinity theory is tritheistic. I have never thought that. The theories differ in this. Four, is this doctrine consistent with the common conception of God as a mighty, unique, and completely perfect self? It depends on the Trinity theory. Again, if you go to my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia, I think the three-self and four-self Trinity theories are not consistent with this conception of God, but I think the one-self theories are. 5. When, if ever, did God reveal this doctrine? I don't think he ever did. The first time you see it clearly presupposed in a major mainstream document would be in the Creed of 381, but I don't believe that that was divine revelation. I believe that was mainstream Christian tradition going off course, as it did in so many ways in the two and three hundreds AD. 
Six, if this doctrine is in the Bible, how can one see this? One can't see it because it's not in there. It's not even implicit, in my view. There's nothing in there that assumes that God is tripersonal. Seven, if this doctrine is not in the Bible, why should Bible-oriented Protestants accept it? I don't think they should. Eight, how does this doctrine relate to the so-called ecumenical councils? It's not in the Nicene Creed of 325. The triune God is not a topic there. It's not a concern that they had at that time. I think that triune God doctrine is presupposed in the Creed from 381. You see it more clearly in some of the later Catholic councils. So I don't think that these councils are authorities because I don't believe in the traditional claim of apostolic succession. I think the prevalence and success of Protestantism without bishops shows that that was not something that's required for followers of Christ to do as far as organizing themselves. And I don't accept that at least the first four councils were just merely summarizing the correct doctrine of Scripture. I think they're making additional claims. And that's pretty clear when you dig into it. 9. Why have some Christians opposed any Trinity doctrine? Answer, they think it contradicts biblical, especially New Testament teaching, which proclaims the one true God to be the Father only. There are other considerations that are relevant, but that's the main one. It was true in 1560, it was true in 1825, it's true in 2021. For more on this, check out Trinity's podcast, episode 248 entitled, How Trinity Theories Conflict with the Bible. And question 10, is this doctrine, as the Athanasian Creed asserts, something which one must believe in order to be saved? I would say, obviously not. Experience shows that there are a lot of saved people who don't seem particularly Trinitarian. Even though they may be part of an officially Trinitarian church or denomination, if you actually talk to them, you see that they just don't have enough component beliefs to count as Trinitarian, and yet you do see the fruit of the Spirit. You do see a changed life. You do see Christ-like character being developed in them. They're just obviously Christians. And so I think Protestants are right to preach a simpler gospel, just like an Acts. Peter and Paul in Acts don't mention anything about a triune God. I don't think they blew it. I think they correctly proclaimed the good news and did it with powerful results. So unless those guys blew it, no, you don't have to believe in the Trinity to be saved. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that one can be saved without believing it. There are lots of important truths, I suppose, that one can be saved without believing. So the advanced questions, question one, hypothetically, what would be required to show that the doctrine of the Trinity is false? Totally depends what the theory is. Question two, does the Trinity either require or exclude a traditional doctrine of divine processions? Totally depends what the theory is. Some require it, some exclude it, some are neutral. Three, is this doctrine a mystery? And if so, what does that mean? totally depends on the Trinity theory. Some avoid mystery appeals, some make mystery appeals central. Those theories mean different things by calling the Trinity a mystery. No simple answer to this. Question four, is the doctrine of the Trinity consistent with divine simplicity? 
Well, it's going to depend on the Trinity theory, and it's also going to depend on how you define divine simplicity. A lot of theologians in recent times are continually trying to weaken the doctrine, so it requires less, and so that maybe you could see how it's consistent with some Trinity theories. Question 5. What, if any, are the Jewish and or Christian precursors to this doctrine of the Trinity? What are the stages by which this line of thinking about God developed? Basically, there is speculation about Jesus' pre-existence. Then there's full-blown Logos theories in the second half of the 100s. And then there's a kind of Christian triadology that you see towards the end of the 100s and through the 200s, where there's the three greatest beings, there's God, there's this slightly lesser God, the Logos, and then there's this Spirit. And those are the three greatest beings, one, two, and three in order. Silver, gold, bronze. And eventually, this morphs into, actually, the three are one God, not God and two others. There's a lot more that needs to be said about those stages, but that's the bare-bones outline. For more, check out some links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org to a couple of interviews I did for the One God Report podcast some time ago. In those interviews, I give a longer narrative than I just gave. Also, there's a link there to a recent published paper of mine, which is relevant to this issue. 6. What are the various competing ways of understanding the traditional Trinity language? Well, most of them are probably categorizable as one self or three self, but there are more than that. So, see my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. 7. How can we rule out competing Trinity theories? It depends which one we're trying to defend. (laughs) 8. Why isn't the prevalence of such disagreement among people who have a Trinity theory evidence that no such theory has been revealed by God? Well, I think it is evidence of that, so I'm not going to try to explain that away. Question 9. If the Trinity is a salvation-required doctrine, why is it not clearly spelled out in any biblical passage? I don't think there's a good answer that can be given there. I think it would have to be clearly spelled out in a way that's accessible to all Christians, but it's not. And so I think that's a good reason to think that it's not a salvation-required doctrine. 10. In what sense, if any, is the Trinity an essential doctrine? Well, it's essential to Roman Catholic tradition. It's essential to Eastern Orthodox tradition. It's essential to Reformed Protestant traditions, but I don't think it's essential to New Testament Christianity, which is what I aim to believe and practice. Okay, but again, don't believe anything just because I say it. Investigate these things thoroughly for yourself. I just ran through those as a way to put my cards on the table to let you know who you're hearing. The point of all these questions is just to seek the truth of the matter. People who care deeply about the truth of the matter will seek hard to find answers to at least the first ten questions, the fundamental questions. This expert that you're consulting, how many of those ten fundamental questions does he clearly answer? And are his answers correct? If you say, not many, and uh, I'm not too sure about these answers you might need to get a second opinion, maybe even a third and fourth opinion. 
don't have that surgery until you're pretty sure about what you're signing up for. Don't buy that car unless you're pretty sure about what kind of value proposition this is. This week's thinking music has been the track The Dweller on Coyote Hill by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.